Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buchholz, and this is episode 139, Finishing Your First Book, an interview with James Blatch, coming to you on Thursday, April 25th, 2019. I must begin by saying, oh my gosh, I think spring is finally in Sweden. (laughs) We thought it was here a couple of weeks ago and then it got super duper cold again. And I had a couple of days of being, oh no, I'm sure spring is here. So I'll just wear my lighter weight coat and not wear gloves. And then I was just freezing on the way to the train. And this time I'm like, okay, just like take it one slow foot at a time wait, no, it's 62 degrees, 17 degrees outside. And the sun has been shining for like, I don't know, four or five days a week. It's been so wonderful. We ate breakfast outside for the first time ever because we didn't have anything to eat on before. And if you were listening last week, you remember that I finally got all of our, the last of our, oh my gosh, I just hate, I don't even want to say 166, how many boxes that 166 that were delivered to our apartment because, oh my gosh, who can unpack 166 boxes in an apartment? But anyway, there was a uh, folding table and chairs. And so we went outside and we ate outside and it was wonderful. Now see, a couple of weeks ago, definitely a couple of months ago, today would have been a really frustrating day because I got a... I don't know, um, thing, a thing. I got a notice. There we go. I got a notice in the mailbox saying that we had a package. Yay. Thank you, Belinda. Woohoo. <laughs> um, and it weirdly was like, go to this other part of town to pick it up. And I was like, that's, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I hope this isn't going to be the new normal. So because it's a holiday weekend, cause right now it's, it's the day before Easter when I'm talking to you. So, um, the buses are, you know, a different schedule and it was late. And, but two months ago I would have been freezing and annoyed today. The sun was shining and I was taking off my hoodie and I'm like, I don't really care when the bus comes. (laughs) And John and I were just talking about cool stuff, which might include a new podcast, which I may be telling you about in the near future. We'll see how that all goes. But anyway, I hope you are having as fantastic a day and week and month as I am. Uh, Like I said, it's Easter weekend right now when I'm recording this intro, and it is beautiful, and I can smell the ham that's in the crock pot, and we've got potatoes in the oven, and and basically it's like, hurry up, kitty, (laughs) record that intro so we can get to the important things of the day, which is eating Easter dinner. (laughs) Now, when we moved to Australia the first time, I was so, first of all, I had just gotten off a plane on Christmas day. So there was a whole lot of reasons why I was just exhausted and mentally unbalanced. (laughs) Yes, I know. My husband would like to say I'm often mentally unbalanced. But what I mean is, is that it was, everything was brand new and I was exhausted. And I was like, we're, we're going to a barbecue. We're having, we're having barbecued hot dogs and hamburgers on Christmas day. Okay. But you know, it hadn't really caught up with me that it would be, you know, the beginning of summer in Christmas in Australia. So I wasn't ready for that. So this is technically my first Easter. We've been here a year and a week, but this is our first Easter here because of how Easter changes, you know, when it actually happens. So, um, 
we are actually celebrating, we celebrated Easter at church last week because we have a four-day weekend here, which is just awesome. Um, so apparently most everybody will go away for the weekend or has gone away. Uh, so we had Easter service at church last weekend. And then this weekend, we're having our Easter dinner today on Saturday because on Sunday we'll go to church and then afterwards we're going to do a barbecue with friends somewhere in a park. So it's uh, it's definitely not the way that I've ever celebrated Easter before, but I'm very much looking forward to it, especially if it's going to be as um, fabulously sunny and beautiful and warm and everything. So that is my Easter weekend. I hope yours was super great. Um, doing something in the spring or the fall, no matter uh, where you're at, you're probably in one of those two <laughs> seasons. I don't think you can really be in the summer or the winter right now, unless you're really far north or in a really, really hot place. So I hope that you are having whatever kind of weather you want to have. <laughs> Anyway, um, okay, now I feel a little bit like I've been spending too much time with James Blatch because it just occurred to me that he likes talking about the weather at the beginning of the self-publishing show <laughs> with Mark Dawson. And if you're like, oh, yes, yes, I knew I'd heard that name before. So James is the uh, host of the interviews and the co-host of the show with Mark Dawson of what used to be the self-publishing formula and is now the self-publishing show. So Mark has written some big amount of books. <laughs> I don't know. He's written a gazillion books. Let's just leave it at that. And uh, and James is finishing up his first one. Yay! And he's been talking about it a lot on their show. And I thought, you know what? We need to get James on this show and talk about what has been working as far as how to actually get to the point where you're finished, not just the, the end of the first draft, which is one ginormous milestone for anyone, but the end of the publishable copy that is now going to go up for sale. Woohoo! So we have a really fun and interesting conversation. And if you've heard James on their show, um, you know that he's just a, a fun and interesting person to talk to in the first place. But it was a really good conversation that we had about how you um, get through eight years of writing a book and get to the end where you're like, okay, this is edited and good and ready to be sold. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and I hope that you, you'll definitely get some tips if you are um, in a place that's similar where you're trying to finish that first book or you're just in a, every time I write a new book, it feels like the first book. <laughs> so you may, uh, you may feel like you've been inspired if you're in that space right now too. But honestly, it's just a really good motivational kind of inspirational talk about this is what happens. We start and we keep going and we figure it out and we finish and then we celebrate. So James, when you're listening to this, you have to be thinking, because I don't know if I asked you, what are you going to do to celebrate? Celebration is a huge huge part of success. I think it's one of the most important things that we can do because neurologically, our brains are looking for feedback. And so we want to give it positive reinforcement feedback to say, oh yes, this is what you know, this person whose, whose head I'm occupying, the brain is saying, this is what this person wants me to do more of. So I can do that. That is why celebrating is such a good idea. So Wherever you're at in your writing journey, look for steps that you can celebrate, whether it's just um, sitting down because you haven't gotten any writing done in a week and you got some writing done today. 
it doesn't have to be anything big, but you just need to let your brain know, yes, more of this, please. (laughs) All right, here we go with our interview with James. I hope that you're totally motivated and inspired. It's going to be a great conversation. And whatever you do this week, have fun with it and try to get some writing done. Today's guest is James Blatch. James is the co-founder of The Self-Publishing Formula, an online resource for indie writers built around the instruction of Mark Dawson, one of the world's leading indie writers. He is also co-presenter of the weekly self-publishing show. James is a former BBC news presenter and reporter. For a decade, he covered defense issues for television news, and during that time, he traveled to the Middle East, Kosovo, and the Arctic Circle, as well as living on board aircraft carriers and flying in military jets. He is close to publishing his debut novel, The Last Flight, set on an RAF station in the height of the Cold War in the 1960s. James lives near Cambridge in England with his wife, two teenage children, a pet Labrador, and a guide dog puppy in training. Welcome, James. Hi, Kitty. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun having you on your show because I got to be on, having you on my show because I got to be on your show. You are on my show and I spend so, like you, probably, uh, you know, a couple of nights a week interviewing other people. It's uh, a rare treat. I can sort of just sit here and relax and you have to do all the thinking. That's right. And you know, um, because I'm a girl and I love dogs, I have to start with, aw, guide dog puppy. Yeah. So it's the first time we've done it. She's gorgeous. She's called Charlotte and she's a retriever Labrador cross. Oh. Um, she's full of character. So she's knocking on eight months now. Oh. And we look after her until she's about 14, 15 months. And at that point, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's a bit like a military thing. You know, she goes to the, either gets chopped or she goes on to the next training yeah. advance. So she goes to advanced training at 14, 15 months. And that's when she's, it's, it's called seeing eye dogs in America. We call it guide dogs in the UK. So if she's an A1, they grade them. If she's A1, she'll be a blind person who's a busy, has a busy lifestyle in the middle of a city, lots of noises. If she's down the scale a little bit, she might be with somebody who only lives, you know, lives in a quiet village and goes out once or twice a week. But at the moment, touch wood, everything's going okay. But um, Wow. But uh, yeah, of course, the looming thing, which we knew was going to be the case, is that we've fallen completely in love with her. And in some point next year or end of this year, we're going to have to give her away. So she has to go yeah. on to the next stage. But, I've heard uh, that that is probably the hardest part because the kind of person who would do it is the kind of person yeah. who would fall in love with them. <laughs> yeah, and she's so gorgeous. But um, yeah, but there you go. So, I, But we also, we are really uh, focused on making sure she gets through trainings. There's a lot of stuff we're doing with her. And uh, I think we'd, we'd be hurt if, uh, if she didn't make it. So that's right. our main aim. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, poor Charlotte, I'm sorry you failed your graduation. You get to live with us yeah. forever. Because <laughs> the kid's secret plan is for her to fail. Right, right. Uh, we hatched that plan, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, speaking of plans, you have had all sorts of things going on in your life. And I thought it would be fun for listeners just to kind of hear Uh, particularly anybody who has also listened to the self-publishing formula as regularly as I have, which is to say, I don't think I've missed an episode. Um, But we've heard a lot about your life in bits and pieces. So let's start. The the whole point is you are, no matter all of your experience in writing and communication, writing your first novel. I am. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. I, I suppose communication, broadcasting, news. I started in radio, not even in news, actually just doing afternoon stupid voices and stuff that we did and played around. 
but it is ultimately all about storytelling. And um, had I start, I started a novel, I think when I was about 20, maybe 19, 20, and didn't progress very far with it at all. In the old days of writing, it was hard work writing. Yeah. And then started one again after I finished at the BBC. So obviously there was oh, wow. something there that when I was at the BBC in my 30s, um, that kind of scratched the itch, whatever it was that makes us want to write, tell a story, write a book. And then when the BBC was taken away from me, I sat there for a couple of years knowing that there was something missing. And suddenly this, this came to me about wanting to write. And I, I haven't really, it's, it was a few years ago that started, that was 2010. So nine years this year or November, 2010. Um, but I haven't really stopped writing during that whole period. It's the same book just keeps getting rewritten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, writer, I read a bit every day now. So Now, um, that's something that I definitely want to come back to because there are a lot of people who feel like they've gotten so tangled up and spent so much time in the same book that they know, they hear the advice, you should just finish it and or move on. But uh, so we'll come back because we want to get your, your perspective on that. So sure. part of the other um, bit that's quite interesting and possibly different from other people is that you are very good friends with a very successful writer. So uh, part of what I am going to ask at some point is also how, what are the pros and cons of that? There's probably both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that sort of emerged because I knew Mark before he he'd had, he'd had his couple of books in the past and Mark's quite Quite a colourful character. He doesn't always come across like that, but he's had quite an interesting life. Um, so if you get him in a bar one night with over a beer, he'll tell you about the time that he punched Lemmy from Motorhead in uh, in Los, uh, Los Angeles, I think. Um, but he's been a lawyer looking after showbiz types. Uh, he kind of burnt out from the law career. He then became a novelist, got a contract, had a couple of books published. So by the time I knew him, that was all in the past. Okay. And I, I read one of his books, The Art of Falling Apart, which I quite enjoyed. He sort of plays it all down now and says they were terrible, but I think we quite, you know, quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and then whilst I was there, I, I can remember the moment when one of our joint friends, uh, joint colleagues at the BBFC in London, basically said to him, I'm starting to make money writing on, on e-books on Kindle. And I don't think it had even occurred to Mark at that point that that was an option. Like lots of people, self-publishing was... I suppose looked at as something that you paid to do if you couldn't get a contract, but it wasn't you. Know, it's something you put money into, not got money out of. Right. And that changed. That light bulb moment went on. And Mark is desperate to write. He's wanted to be a writer his whole life, and uh, it's been wonderful to see for him and you know thousands of others that this opportunity has suddenly made it possible for him to write. So I was there when he started doing it, and um, I think it was the Black Mile was his kind of noir Soho noir book. So we we're working in Soho. Uh -huh. I was there last night, actually. It's a fabulous part of the West End. It's seedy in places and dark and nooks and crannies and quite trendy as well these days. And he wrote this brilliant 1940s um, story about a serial killer operating amongst the rubble of the Blitz, uh, in, which is a true story, actually. I don't think his was a true story, but it, it happened. You know, occasional wives got knocked off in the rubble of a, of a bombed house. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, people took up the opportunity. So pretty dark, sinister side of, uh, of the Blitz, of the bombing of London. Um, and I did a bit of work on the novel for him because I'd been a journalist and he it was a journalist, his, his main character. So I did some proofreading and also developmental reading with him and for accuracy. And he, at one point he wanted me to narrate it. And so all this was sort of happening next to me, but I wasn't particularly involved more than just giving a helping hand here and there. 
and I was on his mailing list. So I think that was my first inkling of how this whole world operated, is I would get these emails from Mark, and I'd think, wow, he's, um, he's enthusiastic. It's like a third email I've had this week telling him, you know, his new book's coming out. And, of course, inevitably, I kind of bought it um, right. as a result of this email list and, and didn't think too much of it uh, until we then became involved together with SPF. And then I sort of thought back to those days, and thought, that's why a mailing list works because I felt a loyalty to him. I was interested in his books and he was alerting me to the fact that they were available. And I was one of the thousands of people who was sent, you know, went straight off to Amazon and bought the books. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he, he stayed at the BBFC when I left. So the, the BBFC, I should say, is like the MPAA. It's the film examining body. So we sat there watching films all day. It's a brilliant job. Sat there <laughs> watching good. films all day or wrestling or whatever it was that came in on DVD and, um, and gave it certificates. But yeah. uh, there was a downturn in DVD submissions. They started making redundancies and I started thinking I might want to do something else. So 2013, I took a redundancy started a video production company along with a previous guy called John Dye, who's also been at the BBFC, took redundancy the year before. Oh, okay. So the so, partner that you had is also, I don't know if you say the word partner in your current business, but he's your partner yes. now too. Yes, <laughs> Still. exactly. So John and I started sort of working together. He'd started this video production company. I was still at the BBFC, but I had a lot of contacts for my RF, uh, my BBC days as a Freudian slip. <laughs> Uh, from my BBC days, I was getting a load of work and I couldn't do it because I had a full-time job and we would have these ridiculous... I remember there was this one weekend when I'd said yes to a job because it was at the weekend. It was in Warsaw in Poland, so I flew to Warsaw. The next week, they wanted me to go to Berlin and do a bit of filming for Volvo. And I couldn't... I hadn't run out of days leave. So I phoned up John and said, there's another job could you do? And he, he and his friend... Uh, John Stone, another John, who ran this video production company. They did that, sort of subcontracted it to them. And I came back on the Monday morning. I had to go to work on Monday because I, I had no leave left, no annual leave. So I got up at sort of 6.30. It was minus 20-something in Warsaw, the ice everywhere. Got into these uh, the terrifying taxis in Warsaw, into oh. the back of this cab, got, got to the airport, realized I'd left my passport, wallet, and everything in this hotel safe. Oh. not the only person who's done this, but I only tell them I'd done it. Sent the taxi back with, you know, six, 60 euros or whatever to go to the hotel. The hotel were brilliant, actually, and they were waiting for him. They had everything out the safe, gave it oh. to him. He came back. I just made my flight. I sat there on the flight. Now, if you draw a line from London to Berlin to Warsaw, it's a straight line. It runs exactly east-west. London, Berlin, Warsaw on a straight line from each other. So whilst I was in the air flying from Warsaw to London... I knew that John and John were in a plane passing me on the same route, landing at Berlin to do a job I really wanted to do, but I couldn't do. Oh. I landed in London, got the tube into the office, arrived at the cinema where my view viewing was at 10.30 at about 10.20. So I had 10 minutes to go and get a coffee, which was great. And I sat there and I thought, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Something's yeah. got to get. I can't race around the world trying to do two jobs. And so I made quite a big decision to give up a full-time job and a decent salary and just hope that the video production work would sustain things. Um, so yeah. that's what I did at that point, 2013, August the 1st was my first day as a free man since I was about 19 when I started my nine to five career. Right. Um, and, and we had, well, I guess a year and two years, about two years and very quickly worked out that it would just about pay the bills, but it's hard work. We flogged around. It was brilliant. I enjoyed it. I went to Africa and Kenya and Uganda and filmed all around Europe. But 
it's not a scalable business. You know, you right. write a you write a book. It's a bit of digital that just sits somewhere in the internet, and you can yeah. sell it a thousand times, ten thousand times, a million times, having written it once. That you know, that's why writing is the ultimate scalable business. And there are other ones around. So John Dyer and I were looking for scalable businesses. We dipped our toes in a couple of other projects. And in the middle of that, Mark Dawson from the BBFC, one of our old colleagues who I, didn't, I was in touch with but didn't see very much, phoned me up and he said, um, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Stevenson, uh, has done uh, an online course. and I'm in that course too. <laughs> it's go. funny how many of you are kind of connected it's in all, a way. It's a very small world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And he said, you know, Nick's, Nick's done really well. It's sold really well. And he said, I, I know as much. In fact, I think I probably know more than Nick. You know, he's quite competitive, Mark. Whether he does or not, I don't know. But, he, you know, the competitive juices were flowing. Yeah. And I think he identified an area that Nick wasn't covering and thought, I can do this. He said, could you guys do the filming for me? Well, I said, right, fine, let's, what, let's have a coffee in London and talk about it. So by the time John Dyer and I turned up for the coffee at the BFI on the South Bank in London, we'd worked out that this was another attempt to ask to become a, get into a scalable business. So we thought, well, rather than us do the filming for him in return for whatever, you know, a couple yeah. of thousand pounds, we'd say, could we have half the business, 25% yeah. each, me and John, and you'd be 50%. And we sat down then before we'd said anything, Mark said, look, I've been thinking about this. Why don't we go 50, 50 on this? So you three have 50% and, and we then we looked at each other. Well, yeah, we can live with that. Yeah. And uh, so you know, we said to him, that's exactly what we were thinking. And yeah. Oh, Kitty, we have not looked back. We have not looked yeah. back. The three of you, I mean, just listening to you guys on the, on the weekly show. And then, um, you know, whenever I can meet up with one of you someplace when we're all at the same writers conference or something, I just think this is a team that works. And yeah. I, I think that in some ways um, it's not a, a difficult thing to find a team that works. And yet it seems impossible that you could be the one who won the lottery, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it really is a really complimentary set of skills. I mean, Mark is, obviously genius at marketing books he's he's, he's a the devil's detail man i mean he knows where the looks and crannies are and he knows how to dot the i's and cross the t's to use a writing metaphor but yeah. he's also a great business strategist now i'm not bad at business strategy but i'm probably better at running a business and knowing what we need to do to run the business and the platform needs to be there which he doesn't want to do mark just does not want to do that stuff yeah yeah i'll, I'll get lost in the account spreadsheet i've been doing that today i love it he doesn't <laughs> want to know he likes to know where are our leads come from other people who bought the course last month where did they all come from and how much money did we spend on advertising but they, obviously so i can unpick all of that and give him the the Basis to make his strategy decisions yeah and he'll say we're going to pay somebody to do this because it's not worth our time doing it and all these decisions and john dyer is somebody who's also a hands-on guy and makes he's a, he's much more a personal person i think than me and he's good with with the students and make sure that help desk runs smoothly and yeah it's it's a really good team it's a really good team okay so this is around 2015 you say yeah about june 15 we launched the first course Okay. But the conversation that you sort of were in, but also just sort of listening to about the other employee who had gotten into Kindle book sales when Mark hadn't heard of it yet, that was 2010-ish, I think you said? Yeah, I guess that was about 11, 10, 11 around there. 
Okay. Um, maybe a little bit after I'd, I coincidentally, I'd started writing my book in 2010, but I don't, I think maybe just, start, it was just after that Mark started really thinking about eBooks. Okay. That was what I was going to ask is what do you think was the thing that got you going again? Do you think it was listening to these guys talk or do you think it was sort of an accident that all these things were coming at the same time? No, it was, it, it was nothing to do with ebook sales or making money from books. It was everything to do with the personal challenge of writing a book. That, that's what it was. And it was, I can remember it really clearly, it was November the 1st, 2010, and Twitter was in its early days for me at least. And one of my friend's husbands, James, another James, tweeted, he said, oh, I'm going to do this to stave off mental torpor, was what he said in his witty little tweet. And I clicked on the link and it was NaNoWriMo. And I read the gist of what it, it was and I didn't read anything more. I never went back to the uh, site again. Yeah, uh, I just opened a word document and started typing out this almost fully formed story from from the word go that had just been obviously I'd just spent 10 years quietly thinking about this story. Yeah. Um, and I started writing it and never stopped. I didn't I got NaNoWriMo done, probably had 60,000 words by the end of November, carried on probably had 90,000 words by January, February. Um, but it was a mess. At yeah. that point. But I was doing it. I was doing it for me and then became, yeah. of course, despondent because I didn't know what to do next. OK, and this is exactly right. Exactly. So this is part of the reason why I wanted to um, sometimes stop you and make clear points to listeners, because there's a certain amount of once somebody uh, is in a place where you see them as being successful. And even though you haven't published your book yet, the fact is, is that you're part of this business, which is a great business, self-publishing formula, self-publishing for authors. Um, and, and people probably um, see you as being that lucky guy. He probably gets all this extra free advice from Mark. But the fact is you have to sit by, every one of us has to sit by ourselves to write our books. Yeah. And so you wanted to, and you did it because you wanted to, not because you knew someone who might be able to help you. No, no, absolutely wasn't. I, and I, I guess at that point, in fact, I'm sure at that point, I was thinking about traditional publishing. I had no thoughts about self-publishing at that point. I just thought at some point I'm going to have a book and then I do whatever you do to get, get it published. I didn't know what query letters were or anything in those days. Yeah. And I was, I mean, I think I knew, I was grounded enough to know I had to write the book. So there was no point in me looking at other things. Um, yeah, but it was, it was quite interesting when, cause I was asked to revisit that more thoughtfully recently when I, I'd become stalled with the book. I hadn't made progress and I was very despondent about it. And as I mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, we had uh, Jenny Nash, a very good editor in California on, and she runs this program um, called author accelerator, which is kind of book coaches and I didn't really know what a book coach was, but I started to listen to this interview and I thought, this is exactly what I need. And so Jenny, I, I, I um, approached them and said, look, I, I want to use your services. I want to pay for handholding to get this just draft done. And she asked me at the beginning of that process to explain to her why I need to tell this story. Why do you need to tell this particular story? And so I had to go back and work out where that story came from and why it was there in my head. And it was very interesting that it, it went quite deeply into my background, who I am, who my parents are, the way I've been brought up, that thing you do when you get a little bit old, when you start to realize that 
you've perhaps been held back because some things happened in your life when you were young. It's taken you a long time to work those out. And we've yeah. all got those. Yeah. And as you get older, it's taken me a long time, you know, knocking on 50 at this point in my 40s, starting to work out or wanting to know who I was and where, what shaped me. And that led back to my father more than anyone else. So this book is, a, this is a story I need to tell about what happened to my father and why he was the father he was to me, which is not sinister. Yeah. A, you know, there's no abuse or anything going on here. This is a father like a million other fathers in America and in Britain, who's not particularly demonstrative, doesn't really say I love you. There were no hugs, not really a lot of encouragement, just a kind of receded, emotionally receded uh, individual. Yeah. And again, I have this conversation. I used to think it was a very British thing, the British Reserve, but a lot of my American male friends say, buddy, that's my dad too. Yeah. He just doesn't, he can't look me in the eye and say I love you. It's just not in his, his, his nature. Um, but that, my feeling was, I think, when I, when I explained to Jenny why I wanted to tell the stories, but that, that kind of stiff upper lip, that, you know, brushing apart the emotional side of it, it, it can damage people. It, it, doesn't give a, it doesn't give a man the ability to love or be loved and, and, and function emotionally properly in the way that a lot of women perhaps find easier, not as easy, but easier. Yeah. And so that suddenly I was amazed where I was writing this down for Jenny, a few tears coming out of my eyes thinking, wow, that was a really good question. Why do I need to tell this story? And once I'd answered that, the next stage, I mean, this is probably the third draft stage, but that draft now, which I'm working on now, came a lot easier because I knew why I was writing the book. You know, and this is another good place to stop and just let listeners really think about that question, that this is the question that changed how the book went for you. Yeah, absolutely, it did. The story was more or less the same. The story is more or less the same. Something's changed that I'll talk about in a moment. But in every scene, in every sentence is an echo of that. It's an echo of the, the stiff upper lip and the fact that this does not come without a cost in yeah. the future. Um, and when you know, when you have that under our, I mean, some people read this book. I've had one person read it, which is my father so far. So he's my arc team so wow. i've told anyone this yet i gave it to him about three weeks ago and he read it in a week i'll tell you in a moment what he said but he he may well be one of the people who reads it and doesn't spot the theme which of course would be a supreme irony a lot of people will just read a book and they'll say well it was about airplanes other people will read this and it'll mean something a little bit different from what i meant and other people will get it i think and understand why the story is telling itself but for me writing it having that theme having that purpose for the story has enabled me to write it properly. Yeah. It's probably um, richer. Yeah, I hope so. Definitely the characters are richer because you know what journey they, they need to go on. You, need, you know that they need to be fighting this. You know, my main character needs to be fighting this urge just to toe the line and put his head down and get on with things rather than stand up and challenge what is the situation in front of him because yeah. he's because he's he's my father he's, he's that generation who who understand that you all toe the line and that's how the organization works yeah of course occasionally you're presented with a situation in life where you've got to do the opposite of that and that's a very difficult thing for an individual to do so in my theory in my my world this is almost like a fantasy it's like this this person who would have put his head down and become that emotionally closed person in the long run. But because this, this presented it to himself and because he made the right decision, he saved himself and he saved his children from being that closed up person. So that's, wow. that's part of the story. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> we have already made a turn from me thinking, I really want to support James, but I don't want to add myself to his mailing list and then be one of the people that mess up his Autobots <laughs> and because like, I'm just not really interested in planes in World War II. But now you're like, if it's a story about a man who like becomes a better man and has a better family because of it. I'm like, okay, I might have to read it then. <laughs> yeah. Almost romantic, but it's romantic in a different way. It's not, it's yeah. not a traditional, right? It's a, it's a romance about saving ourselves. Yeah. It's a bit, there's a, a, the Titanic script. I know lots of people thought it was very clunky and cliche and it probably was and could have been written slightly differently, but the story behind the film, the Titanic film, James Cameron's film, I loved the story and I loved the line at the end where she said, he saved me in every way that a woman could be saved. Yeah. which is it, and that was more of an open romance but it, he was dead right so there was no romance beyond one night of passion in the back of a car yeah the romantic side of it was what he gave her so that i was really inspired by that and this this moment gives this this person um the rest of his life yeah. because he made the right choice oh, or well. will he make the right choice could you who knows you have to right. really he might make the wrong choice <laughs> let's leave that jeopardy hanging hanging there <laughs> All right, so is now a good time to ask what your dad said or we'll ask, I'll ask the question later. So, so I handed it to my dad and uh, he had it a week or so. It's quite long at this point. It's 152,000 words at the moment and it's not quite finished. So he didn't have the ending and um, he didn't say anything to me. And I went over to see him and he didn't say anything. And then he sort of said, oh, your book's not finished. I, thought, I, said, I looked at him and said, oh, you've read it. So he, um, he must have read it if you got to the point where it's not finished. Yeah. And... Um, I said, what did you think? And then before we could answer, I said, what was your overall impression of the book? Bearing in mind, I spent eight years writing this book. Yeah. I didn't say that bit. I just said, what was your overall impression? And he said, there were quite a lot of RAF protocol errors in it. <laughs> and I knew he was going to say that. I knew yeah. he was going to say that. That's why I'm writing this book. Because, you know, there was never going to be a, that's amazing that you've written this book. I can't believe you've done it. It's so good. Oh, I've got a few notes here and there, but, you know, there was none of that. There was, there was, there's error, because he's a very practical. Yeah. You know, he, he thought I wanted the practical. And he's given me, by the way, two or three pages, which I've got here somewhere, of brilliant notes. Oh, and I've already changed an aspect of the cover for technical detail. So he's perfect. And he'll be a great arc reader for me. But, but I did say, when he said that, so I said, what, you know, what was your overall impression? Well, there were quite a lot of RAF protocol errors. And I said, was that your overall impression of the book? <laughs> and he said, um, oh, no, it was, you know, it was okay. I wanted to know what happened next. And that's, that's it. That's a great compliment. That's a great compliment. And I'll take that. And yeah. um, it meant a lot to me. He's 88 and he's deteriorated a lot this year. And I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not unrealistic about it could be a phone call tomorrow when your, your parents are that age or my dad's that age. Yeah. And I, I, I just, the reason I, I handed it to, it was a rather spontaneous decision one day a couple of weeks ago, but I just thought I'm going to regret if I don't get a chance, he doesn't get a chance to read it. So I'm just going to put it in his hand. I'm in the denouement now, so I'm hopefully, it's, I can talk about the writing process in a moment, but I'm hopefully getting there. But um, I wanted him to read it. And I'm pleased he's read it. And, yeah. uh, and he's given me, some, like I say, some brilliant notes, most of which will, will feature changes in the book. So, You know, and it's a story to tell later um, when the book's done and it's out. And um, there, I can't remember the name. The book, there's a book title. It's like right on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of it. But anyway, it's the, uh, that we all give in a different way. 
And so yeah. people who give in this way, if they don't get in that way, they think that people aren't giving to them. But for your dad, who's a very practical person, he, he probably was giving you like, um, I don't know, not, not a gift exactly, but like he, he thinks he's giving you something valuable by pointing yeah. out the errors so that you can correct them. So, and he is. And, and when he said yeah. it's okay, I want, to, I want to know what happens next. That was a huge compliment for him. So yeah. I'll take, take that. And, and so I guess, you know, just because we're writers and so we're always thinking in story, I'm thinking, oh, there's, there's probably somebody who's listening who's going, that's what I need to do with my one character. Like they're trying to give something in a way that somebody else is trying to receive it differently. And there's either, you know, uh, tension or conflict or learning to find, you know, how we love differently or we give differently and that, oh, this is the way that this person shows me that. They love yeah. me. Anyway, you got my brain thinking, mm. so that's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. I, I'm thinking now as well. And I do love, I love one of the things, so working with the editor week in, week out, it's been brilliant for developing the way that I write and fine-tuning it. And I, one of the things she's got me doing, the bit she always love, loves, is when there's not a one-dimensional reaction to something, when it's conflicted. Um, so so I, I'm conflicted about hearing my father. On the one hand, you know, would I have loved him to have said, I'm amazed you've written, I'm amazed you've written this book and well done. Yes, I would have loved that. But at the same time, that's not who he is. And he's given me something that I can be pleased with in, in terms of it. So things aren't straightforward. There's no, I can't sit there and say, oh, you know, something's wrong with my father. He can't talk pre, he can't talk emotionally about that. would be so wrong for me to think that, even though in the book probably is going to be a little bit more like that. Life is full of conflicted views, right? We don't yeah. have the answers. That's right. That's so right. We try and make sense of it. But. Right. And the thing is, is that you as a parent, us as writers, the, the thing that we can give the world is the idea that um, maybe I should think about this from another perspective and find something in my life that I see is a, a better way to look at it, a healthier way, or get something more out of it because of a fictional story that I read where somebody had a similar situation. Yeah. I mean, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make sure that um, all the things that you wanted to say to other people who are still doing, you know, the, writing their first book or writing the fourth draft or the 10th year, or <laughs> I'm talking to you, my friend, Stephanie, <laughs> uh, okay. what can you tell my friend, Stephanie, about um, how to get to the end for one thing and not keep second guessing yourself about, oh, you know what? I should just that's not the right beginning. I, I, I'm going to redo it. I'm going to start here. I mean, I, I definitely needed help. I've, I've really, really flourished under the tutorage of a book coach. So that's my number one thing. The first, I think I've done things in the right way by accident in that I sat down and just wrote. And NaNoWriMo was brilliant for that. And because you've got this clock ticking and I was, I was only fresh out. I was, I was, yeah, fresh out of the BBC and I still had contacts there. And one of them had contacted me to appear on national radio to talk about NaNoWriMo. Really? I, yeah, yeah. So I, I was like four days into this and I'd tweeted that I was doing it. So I got the phone call from Catherine who's a producer at Radio 4 and she said, look, come into London. We're going to have a lunchtime program, big, big high profile program and feature NaNoWriMo. Um, can you come in and do the interview? And I said, that's fine. So it's on Thursday and this was I think it was probably Wednesday. I thought that's fine. I'll come in tomorrow. She said, no, no, next Thursday. Now that was interesting because that's quite a, a few days into NaNoWriMo. I was only three days in. A lot of people give up in that first week. 
Yeah. They don't make it into the second week. Well, I had to get to Thursday because I couldn't turn up as a fraud <laughs> yeah. uh, to Radio 4. So that was an interesting little moment for me. And I think once I got to Thursday, you've then got an investment that you can't really, if you let go then, it's going to be a real shame yeah. with, for 1,500 words a day at that point. So, so I just wrote, which obviously is good advice for anybody in the first draft, just write. And also, if you're just starting out writing, you need to write to learn how to write. And I'm probably three or 400,000 words in now writing, and they talk about needing a million words to sort of find your voice. So that's all good. It made no sense really in terms of all the story, the basic story underneath it all had, had a big, beginning, middle and end, but I'd invented the, you know, the wife's family characters in London. I needed the beginning to set them up properly but I wasn't going back to the beginning I just knew by the end of it I then had to go back and, and sort everything out and put it in order my idea was that that's that would be the revision stage but honestly I didn't know where to start with that and that I became despondent after I'd got to the end of it yeah I became despondent I just didn't it was a mountain in front of me and I didn't know how to even put my first foot on the first foothill of that okay. so although I tinkered with it for a few years nothing really changed and then Mark came along and the whole SPF business started and we did Facebook advertising for authors was the first course, which is really aimed at people with three books plus and who are advertising and paid ads and stuff. But his original idea was to do this foundation course to teach them everything he knew about how to set yourself up to be successful, how not simply just to upload your book or have a website, but how to do all of that correctly to maximize your chances of being commercially successful. Right. So we then visited that a year down the line and created what we now call a self-publishing 101 course. And he said to me, finish your book because I'll use it. So that gave me a target, which I missed. And I, <laughs> I basically wrote the book again. So I thought, well, it was very long and rambling. It was 100,000 words and had too many characters, all the sort of mistakes you make. Yeah. So, and I'd read a couple of his books at that point, which were much simpler, fewer characters. And I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll strip it back down take out everything extraneous and just tell this core story. Well, that was very short. It was like 50,000 or 45 or 50,000 words. Yeah. And also wasn't coherent because, well, what were the problems with it? There were several problems with it. One is it wasn't meaty enough. The story by itself, just telling the perfunctory mechanics of the story is not enough. That's not, and it got so far away from what I hadn't realized at that stage to why I was writing it. It was just this perfunctory story. We did nonetheless use it. It pretended that it was finished for the 101. If you look at the 101 course, it gets a front cover, a brilliant front cover, and <laughs> it gets uploaded all over the place. But actually, it's not finished. And then I, I, I was in that, again, that limbo period tinkering with it. And you know, I, I, everyone, people listening will have gone through this, but I can't tell you another way out apart from the way out I found, which was to pay for a book coach. So this is not a developmental editor. Now, I tried this with my editor. So I had an editor, another, another Jenny, actually. And I said to her, so she read it and gave me this feedback, which I kind of knew anyway. It's not substantial enough, um, but there's good characters. Christina said, I can see the basis of it, but it's not there. But didn't, I, wasn't, I didn't find it particularly helpful, apart from talking through some of the, some of the ideas, which did make it into the book in the end. But I wanted her to say, well, can you help me as I'm writing it, perhaps look at a chapter as I write it. And she was very traditional industry and just said, write it again and then give it to me. I don't think, I just don't think that's a good way of writing your first novel yeah. because you do a lot of 
work in the dark by yourself and then at the end of it get told oh you should have done it completely different at the beginning obviously it's what an inefficient way of doing any mass you know big project yeah but when jenny said we do this author accelerator to get a, a manuscript done and it's developmentally edited as you go along so you'll get feedback saying right rewrite those scenes from last week and write three new scenes for next week and that's how it kind of goes along now i started doing that and suddenly well a really important bit before then was her asking me why I'm writing it and be understanding that and then redoing the outline. So we redid the outline, a two-tier outline. If you're familiar with each sort of scene, you write what happens in it and then another few lines on why or what the motivation is of the characters. So each scene's got that. But Kitty, I've got that here. It's my Bible. Oh, so, my goodness. So these are the pace that I'm, you know, I'm in the sort of end game here, but there's a great, there's a, a good example of, scene here where boss tells Robbie's to be interviewed by the man investigating and at the bottom here three lines the investigators are going to look through his logbooks Rob will now know they're on to him and the clock is ticking so that's the point of that scene so you yes. can write it's, it's a luxury this once you've done this it's then how much fun is it if someone says to you right two people need to go into a room and be interviewed and one of them needs to come out of that in the certain knowledge that the clock is ticking and he's running out of time. And then you've got all the freedom in the world to talk about the smoke stained ceiling <laughs> and the smell and his nervousness and him clenching his fists and trying to, you can just enjoy the writing knowing where you're going to get to. Yeah. So that, that was a brilliant system. Um, but you did this yeah. after you'd written the first draft. After, after the first draft, after the second draft, this is when <laughs> I, this is Jenny, um, Nash. So this is Author Accelerator. This is part yeah. of their project. So at the beginning, they say to you, why are you writing the book? So they understand that. Um, and then we do this outline, this two-tier outline, and then you start writing it. Then you start okay. turning these scenes into actual scenes in the book. Um, the reason I asked a, yeah. is because if you, if, you, if you thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to start a new book. Um, I don't know. I mean, there are people who can outline a book that they haven't written yet. But I would think that that would be fewer people who than those who could write a first draft, know that it needs work, and then go back and figure out what the story was that they were trying to tell and then outline it. Like I, I one time I tried to write a brand new story that I hadn't actually written with a scene by scene breakdown like that. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got like a hundred pages of notes and scene notes and stuff into it. I was just like, this is so boring to me now because there's no discovery for me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, part of it well, might be just the type of writer, but do you think that part of it is because you'd already written the first draft? I think, I think that's a really good point. And I'm now thinking about the next book, obviously, because I'm in the Mark Dawson school of uh, writing and I know that I need uh, three, four, five, six, seven books. Yeah. Um, I started making some notes yesterday of an idea that's been going around my head and it's an important thing to do because I need to set that up in this book as well, the character. Um, and I think I'm going to do exactly what you've just talked about. I, I think it's the only way I know how to do it, which is just to sit there and write a draft and just write, write the story. It'll be gobbledygook and I'll make changes, but I'll discover the story in that process. Then I can outline it. I don't okay. think that's how I'm going to do it. Everyone's different yeah. and it will work. And it does feel... Like a kind of, you know, I was explaining this to a friend actually, that drink last night I had in Soho, he wants to write a novel, of course everyone wants to write a novel. And I was explaining this to him and he said, so when you write it again, the second draft, do you use the first draft, you copy and paste? I said, well, I don't, I wouldn't, I'd rewrite it again because you'll write it better. So, you, so it's, a, it's a waste. I said, well, it's not, it's not a waste. 
it's part of the process that's got you there, but I can see from the outside why that would look a daunting waste of time <laughs> to write yeah. 75,000 words and then never read them again or you know, once you've done your outline and moved on. But yeah. I think that's what I'm going to do, Kitty. I think it's the only way I know. I think I'll discover the story properly, trying to write it down the first time. Then I can outline it like this and then I can enjoy writing it. Right. Yes. Because then in that, in that second draft, you'll be like, oh, this is what I was trying to say the first time. And yes. now I'm really saying it. Yeah. And you can do the little clever things that you set things up properly at the beginning. And because you know, you've got an idea what's going what's going to happen to him. And so there's been lots of that in this, you know, there's been a, there's a character who um, sadly demises uh, at various points in this. So it's been nice to have little tender moments with him and his wife early in the book. Uh, when he's sort of contemplating life, you know, with his whiskey tumbler, which he used to have four of these whiskey tumblers. Now they're down to one. It's just what happens over the years. You know, they have a few right. parties in the officer's mess and eventually he's just got this one tumbler, which he rather likes and hopes he's going to take it into retirement. Of course, my editor's saying it made me cry because I know what's happening down the line. But that's what you can do when you've got a decent outline and you've written the book already. So you're kind of familiar with the characters. And yeah. that, I, I am, you know, I'm loath to say that's how you should write a book. Thank because you. I don't know what the answer is, um, exactly. but I do know that I think it's going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because I really, um, I believe because of all the people that I've talked to and all the people that I've taught and stuff, everybody's got to find their own way. But to do that, it's so much more helpful if you can talk to four or five people who do it at least a little bit differently mm -hmm. so that you can find the way that works for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Oh. There was not, I just, whilst I'm on the subject, I just, again, I'm a big fan of Author Accelerator. It's worked really well for me. The proof, I guess, will be in the pudding as whether the book's any good, good, but it's certainly been a brilliant process for me. And there was a great developmental moment at the beginning. So my book, without telling the whole story, my book starts with a crash. One of these aircraft behind me, actually, Navarro Vulcan, goes down. There's three people in the back, two crew. Only one person survives, which wasn't untypical of those crashes. The people in the back didn't have ejection seats. They had to kind of scramble out, and they often didn't get out. Right. And... The, one of the guys who's died kind of gives up secrets from the grave and the young guy who survived it realized he should have been paying attention when this guy was alive. He's onto something and he's challenging the authorities, but he was being put down. So he's, there's the conspiracy there. Yeah. And, and I wrote this original outline for Jenny and Lizette who became my editor. And Jenny said to me, look, we we talking around in circles a little bit about it. And she said to me, just put down on two pages or, you know, one page of A4, make maximum two. Explain to me what the secret is. What, what actually has this guy discovered? So I've got that clear. And I wrote down these, this page where I talked about this early flight where something went wrong. They almost crashed. And this quite wise, experienced air engineer started to have little flags going off in his mind. He's not seen anything like this before. He's noticed some senior officers who don't want to know the truth rather than do want to know what's happened. Mm -hmm. And he's also sensing danger going on. And so I wrote these two pages and of course I had this next meeting with them and they both said to me, it was the most gripping thing you've written. So <laughs> they said to me, that's the beginning of your book. Your book oh. isn't the day of the crash. Your book is three months earlier when this starts to unfold. And in that one moment, it fixed a lot of problems. Yeah. Chiefly, it fixed the kind of lack of not enough happened in the story. Because it was only set over a week or two weeks. This guy discovered everything and quickly the clock's ticking, had to solve it. Now there's this build up to it, this background yeah. where Rob's not, you know, the young guy's not really aware of what's going on, even though they're meeting every day. And it's, it's, it's made the book, that one 
developmental tip from them that said, start your book three months earlier. Wow. Don't hide all this stuff. Yeah. Have, the, have the reader have this journey with them. So when he dies, the reader's thinking, oh no, you know, is this Rob got it in him to, to find this out? That's, that's what you want. So it was brilliant developmental work, I thought. Right. Hope I haven't All right, well, <laughs> we're, we're really, um, we're really kind of pitching author accelerator here. I'm definitely going to link to them in the show notes, but, um, let's talk about anybody else that you thought was, uh, helpful to, from getting you from, you know, the, the first draft in 2010, when you did NaNoWriMo, uh, to now when we're looking at, so you and I are talking, uh, it's, it's early April. I have to look at my watch. It's early April of yeah. 2019. And, um, we're talking about probably getting it done and putting it out this year. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I was hoping it was going to be June. I'm slightly anxious that, um, I haven't finished it and it's, as I say, 152,000 words, which is quite long for a novel. Um, so the rev revision stage, and Mark's already warned me that the revision stage will take longer than I think it's going to take. Even though this is developmentally edited, it's nowhere near copy edited, by the way. I, I, I don't necessarily misspell words, but I miss out words randomly <laughs> when I'm writing quite fast. So yeah. copy to do. Um, so I did want it to be June. I'm hoping it's going to be summer. I mean, I don't, I don't want to turn up at the conferences in the autumn and have that question yeah. Every day, every five minutes, when's your book coming out, dude? Yes. Um, so I want it to certainly be be done at that point. Um, so what's helped? Two things I think have helped. One is I'm in an amazing community of of authors like yourself, Kitty, and, and everyone's so supportive and friendly and enthusiastic for you. And every day of the week, I will get a note from somebody saying, keep going, just get it written in a week, can't wait for it. And that's that's hugely motivating for me. Yeah. Um, and the next thing is much more practical thing. And it's probably the oldest tip that you'll get from, from writers, which is to read. So reading books in genre for me has been hugely important. And I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction. I have my journalistic background. I don't know. I like reading. Uh, not, not, uh, not unrelated. So I'm reading Command and Control, which is about the development of the nuclear command system in America in the 50s. Fascinating nonfiction book. But I'm also reading Ken Follett books. I'm reading... Um, even uh, David Baldacci, I'm reading a lot of books that are in the, roughly the same genre and now reading them thinking, where are the beats? You know, how's this story told? And that's as important as anything else, so reading. Yeah. And have you found yourself, um, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we stop and think about, oh, this is how it worked so well in this book. Like, am I doing it that well in mine? But has anything made you stop and think, okay, I actually am going to make a note that I'm going to make a change or, or? I think one of the, um, one of the issues I've had is the really, really successful authors, James Patterson. I've read James Patterson. I've read Robert Ludlum. And now Robert Ludlum, my dad reads Robert Ludlum, and I've seen his books around for years, but never read one. He's died now, I think, Robert, but I think his son now sort of does, does the, the books. And I read that, and it really felt like a, a Da Vinci Code style book, a Dan Brown style book, in that it's written in a slightly simplistic way. Mm -hmm. completely clear there's no point you're never bamboozled by what might be happening you, you know you're guessing what might be happening in terms of the story but you're never unclear about what's happening because it's spelled out for you and they are brilliant sellers and brilliantly written and dan brown is a genius and robert ludlum was a genius in the way they wrote these books and these are high consumed books the people who read ludlums read all of them which yeah. is where yeah. i need to be right this is mark dawson territory but <laughs> 
I don't quite have that ability. Now I'm not, I'm not going to win a book prize the way I write, but I don't, I don't think I have that, that, that just writing as simplistically as that for me, it's always got to be a little bit more flowery, I guess is might be the word a little bit more, yeah. what I'm going to say sophisticated, but I'm really trying not to use sort of pretentious language. It makes it sound like my writing's better than this because it's yeah. not, it's easier for me to write in a slightly more noirish way where I enjoy the writing. And if I was reading, I would enjoy the kind of descriptive, descriptive writing with those books that sell in my genre in big numbers are not like that. So yeah. I have discovered something through writing, but I'm not sure how it's going to help me unless I really sort of learn to write in a different way. But it's a bit of an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's a little bit like um, some people you walk into their home and you think, oh, this is an antique collector without even getting two rooms in. And some people you walk in and you see, wow, this person must really be a minimalist or else they just moved in. And and I think that um, for lack of a better word, maybe, maybe it's a little bit like minimalism in as yes. much as... Because it's still good. It tells you everything you need to know. You're emotionally invested. You're, um, you're invested in the action as well, in the characters. It's not like anything's missing. It's just... Yeah, it's perfun- it is quite perfunctory. It jumps... I mean, maybe that's what's going to happen in the revision state. So Jenny Nash... And uh, I should, I keep going back to this. Just, it just it's been my, my life and it is my life at the moment. And but so I'm, it sounds like I'm a complete fanboy but i am of jenny i think she's brilliant and we do this book lab episode on the self-publishing show and jenny's bits are the highlights in terms of well, not to denigrate the others that they're brilliant as well but her description of what was wrong with the writing is is really brilliant yeah i think she's planning kind of a, a rather public revision phase with me um so that people can learn from it yeah and i'm wondering if during that revision phase she will ask me to strip out some of the extraneous well it's clearly it does need to be stripped out because i can't release a two hundred thousand words it's not an epic fantasy yeah yeah novel so it will be maybe that in that process i'll learn a little bit more about how you go from you know action sequence scene in the middle where they rest but they're planning the next one to next action sequence which is kind of how london works and it's a good page turning read yeah yeah well, I have to say, you, you've definitely moved me from, I'm not, gonna, I'm, I, I'm not going to apologize for not reading this book. It's just not my type to, okay, I might have to read your book. But <laughs> this kind of brings us around to something that you mentioned at the beginning. This is the power of talking about your book and having a newsletter where you're talking about your book. Because you get people invested in something. And then yeah. they either want to support you or they become genuinely interested in something that they may not have actually been that interested in at the beginning well it all comes down to storytelling doesn't it kitty because the reason that you're you're thinking i'd like to read this because you want to know what happens because i've piqued your interest there's a story there and a lot's happened in the past but where's it going where's it how's it going every aspect of our life is based around storytelling newspaper writers know understand this that's why they don't just write a story about two people getting married they'll look for those little things that make it make you go what you know that, that how's that happening what's going to happen next um and when you want to sell your book you need to tell people a story it's what a newsletter is it's about knowing who you are the journey you're on I the journey word but there you go the journey you're on and then people if you just if you just say here my books are available here you know that's going to be meaningless yeah if you say to them this is the book which changed my life 
that's the sort of thing people are thinking, well, what's the story there? Where's yeah. the story? So you don't have to quite say that about every book, but you know, a little bit of you going into your newsletter, a bit of honesty about stuff or, or even uncertainty. I'm not sure whether I should have written this, but that, that type of thing, these are the emails that do well, yeah. keep people interested and make them go on. So we, you know, the writers listening to this can be brilliant storytellers with their novels, but they need to understand that marketing is about storytelling as well. Yeah. Um, and if you can grab people and bring them in, that's going to sell your books. Well, that's an excellent segue to something that I did say. Why don't you talk about Mark Dawson's course and, and your business? It's your, your joint business with the three of you. Let's talk a little bit about that as we close up the show so that people know, if they didn't already know, what some of the resources are that you've been using successfully and that you're a part of offering to other people. Sure. Yeah. So I guess, like I alluded to earlier, we have two courses. I'm just going to get one, just so I can uh, keep myself uh, informed, get the, uh, the courses up here in front of me. Um, one is Self-Publishing 101. Now, who's that aimed at? That is aimed at anybody who has got to the end of their manuscript. So basically, we don't teach craft. We do actually have a craft course coming up that can be completely separate. This does not teach you how to write all the stuff we've been talking about. This teaches you what to do with your manuscript once you've written the end and it's been edited and it's ready to go. So we talk about, you know, cover design and not just cover, you know, not just how you should do it, but why some covers work, some don't. Mm -hmm. Talk about the website, what it should do, its purpose, how you track things. Uh, we go through the whole process of communication with readers, setting up the mailing list is a really important part of it. So Mark is a big advocate of the mailing list. I do occasionally meet authors for whom the mailing list is not that important for them, and that's great. They think things work in a different way for them. I think for most of us, a mailing list is going to be a foundation for our sales. Yeah. And if you use it properly, the way Mark teaches it, and he has a real, it goes down to almost day by day, it literally is, he has a timetable for release and how it works. You utilize your mailing list to kickstart the old Amazon algorithm. If you get people doing a lot of things at the same time, the algorithm wakes up and it's like, Amazon likes stuff people like, right? It won't promote yeah. a book no one's buying, but it will promote a book that's got a lot of hits in one or two days. And that book will start to appear in people's emails that they get from Amazon and on their also books and all the rest of it. And suddenly you've got a bit of momentum going. But that takes planning. It doesn't happen by accident. You can't do it on Monday to get that ready for, for Wednesday. Yeah. So that's what the course is. It's um, pretty comprehensive. I think I counted up the hours recently. It's about 25 hours uh, in it. But that includes a tech library, which because a lot of people... It's, it's really geared around anybody uh, so you don't have to have any technical knowledge and you can literally go hand you know be handheld through the process of opening an apple account opening a, Co a kobo account etc and then how to do the websites so that's the 101 course um now we do um only open it a couple of times a year which sounds a bit odd but we have quite a lot of support that goes on with it so we have a team of people and it just works for us we get six or seven hundred people wherever it is sign up in one go and they all go through at about the same time you don't have to. The videos are there for your whole life and they get updated. It's yours for life once you bought it, including all the updates. But most people go through roughly the same time. So there's a Facebook support group and that works really well. So we've just closed it actually in, um, here we are in April, as you say. Yeah. It'll open again in the autumn. So probably in November, I'm thinking. No, it might be September, I think. Uh, so one of them will open. But if you go to selfpublishingformula.com forward slash 101, there's a wait list there and you can make sure that you, you know when it's going to open up again. And then the other course, which is the one we did first, uh, is actually more advanced. It's called Advertising for Authors. And it's more geared around the paid ads platform. So these are people, you know, it's, you can pay ads 
pay for like Facebook advertising to build your mailing list with one book. And I'm building my mailing list now, uh, even free publication, and I'll put some money into ads. But I don't expect that to be a profitable thing. It's a future building thing. But ads for authors is more about becoming profitable. So you probably need, I would say, three books, two at yeah. a push. Um, more, the better, more product on the shelf to work with, the better. And then uh, it takes you through three big ones for us, which are Facebook advertising, AMS advertising, Amazon marketing services, and BookBub ads. And then there's a whole bunch of other things about how you design ads and sort of Facebook Messenger bot, which is a kind of new thing um, uh, that goes along with it. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's a slightly bigger course. That's going to be open in June, we think. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the the course where we have people like Shane Silvers, uh, who's an author in um, where does he live? Not near Atlanta. I think it in a second, somewhere in the states. <laughs> but he is one of a number of people who said to us, "I'm a millionaire because of that course." I mean, not exaggerating. He said, "I didn't know. I was bumbling along. I made a few hundred dollars a month. He now makes six figures a month." And his readers adore him. And they have their own cons for him now. He goes to his own con. Oh, I did um, read about him. Yeah. yeah. One of your emails talked about him. And he's not the only one. So this, this course, and this is Mark's, to Mark's credit, not mine. I help him put it together, but it's his teaching. This unlocks it. If you've got the writing and you've got the books, this is the course that unlocks and turns it into a professional career for you. So we're really proud of that course. And I love going to meet people like Shane and interviewing him and hearing those stories. And we've got... I've got a page full of those, uh, those testimonial interviews somewhere. So they're the two courses. And most of our life is geared around supporting them. So we're updating them at the moment. MailChimp are brilliantly having, I just re-recorded all the MailChimp stuff in 101 uh, in November. And then they've just changed the platform two weeks ago. Oh so gosh. I'm now doing that. But that's, you know, it's part and parcel of what people get. They get it up to date. So I'm redoing that. And yeah. we're going to make some, we're going to put in some more advanced training uh, into ads for authors. We'll probably have to re-record the whole of Amazon ads because that platform is changing quite quickly at the moment. Yeah. Um, and most of our life is, is geared around uh, doing that. But Kitty, it's been really successful. So touch wood, we're blessed. I'm blessed to have found Mark because he's the genius behind it. People love his teaching. It's made a practical difference to their lives and people are therefore happy to invest in the course. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's providing a living for me and some space to write a book. It's so awesome. That is, that is the best thing. I mean, um, whether you're writing full-time or doing something else that you love, uh, so long as you can write, I think that um, there's, a, there's a place where you can just be like, okay, I've got my joy. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you wake up in the morning and starting work in your pajamas, um, five minutes after you've woken up is also a blessing rather than sitting on the train to London. That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was worried that I was going to be late to our interview just because the, the trains here in Malmö, Sweden were not exactly on time tonight. And I'm just like, just now that free. surprises me because <laughs> the Swedes have a, have a reputation for doing everything correctly and everything well, not quite maybe to the Japanese bullet train level, but um, there you go. So Swedish trains can be late. They can be, but I think that the, uh, the problem is, is that when they are, for me at least, it's still such a surprise because all the rest of them, like I'm used to, in, when I lived in Sydney, if the, if the train said that it was at, you know, um, 1218, then probably it was arriving at the station 1218, you, you had probably until 1219 to get on the train. In Sweden, I quickly learned the hard way, like it took four or five or six times of me missing a train to realize this is the time the train's going to leave the station. Yeah. 
And you know, they've just introduced new trains in the UK. They have, they do have that in the UK, actually. And our trains are, in parts of the country, they're awful, but most of the country, they're much better than they used to be, certainly on our line. But they have the same thing, 1218, at least 1218. And in some cases, the doors shut 30 seconds before they leave and you can't get on. <gasps> Which is a bit rude. It's a bit naughty, right? But uh, yeah, so that's a new train. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, we, we found out the hard way that uh, Paris uh, train doors, they, they have no room for error in them. Uh, John's backpack got caught and oh. kept the doors open, which is good because my leg was in the door and the rest of oh, me wasn't. <laughs> Thank goodness. Several Parisians like jumped up and yeah, yeah. if they hadn't, I was, I was just thinking, wow, this is my birthday celebration. I'm going to die on my 51st birthday. In Paris. <laughs> On a, on a subway. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay, so we've talked about Author Accelerator, and I don't mind saying Jenny Nash's name as many times as we <laughs> want to. Um, I'm, I'm uh, a friend, friend acquaintances with uh, one of her partner's friends, um, Lisa Crone, who wrote okay. um, Story Genius and Wired for Story, and I've had her on the show, and she told me, you should have Jenny on the show, and then I heard her on your show, I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to, you know, look like I'm copying and everything, but... You should, you should definitely have her on your show, she's amazing, and your, your um, you know, people listening will get a lot more out of it in terms of writing than they'll hear from me, who hasn't yet published the book, so Jenny, I can listen to Jenny all day talking about writing. You know, maybe we should talk about having you both on talking about it together. No, no, I'm going to save that for you. You have your own show. You're going to want to do that. Maybe after the revision process. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. So uh, where can readers, uh, sorry, I say that all the time. Sorry, everybody. Where can listeners uh, find out more about you? Maybe sign up for your newsletter. Well, we are all readers as well, right? I don't mind being That's called right. a reader. There's no <laughs> such thing as a writer who doesn't read. Well, it shouldn't be. Um, yeah, quite simply, jamesblatch.com. So luckily, there's, a, there's only a couple of prominent James Blatches in the world. And the other one is in Sydney, the bodybuilder. Oh, wow. Uh, so he's about, if you can see the YouTube, he's about that big. Uh, <laughs> and he's recently been arrested for the supply of steroids. But we are in touch. We have been for years because I occasionally get emails that are quite clearly for him, not me. Something about working on our abs on <laughs> Thursday. And I say, this is the other James Blatch. So I send it to him and we laugh and he sends some stuff to me. But you know, uh, yeah, I know I think he's innocent. So I'm, 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 willing, I'm willing, James, he's got a new attorney team, he tells me, and he's, um, uh, he's hopefully going to go through the court system soon. But that aside, <laughs> everything's a story, right? That's story. right. Well, I was just going to say, I, I really, um, I can understand how people could not really tell you apart because you pointed to your pec muscle, muscles when you said working on your abs. Oh, did I? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, see. No idea. <laughs> I've got a gammy knee, is all I know. Um, yeah, so anyway, I have jamesblatch.com. He's never asked me for it, but I have it, and um, we hold on to it. So, yeah, at the moment, it's just a single page, landing page, just to sign up to the um, my main list, and I've done a nice little uh, responder sequence of three or four emails with a bit of backstory, a bit of stuff about my father and logbooks and stuff. So hopefully practicing what I've been preaching about, you know, telling that story and getting people... Um, or share, sharing a bit of your life with people so that either, that's the other thing about this is either they're the right people who want to be there or they're the wrong people. You shouldn't be afraid of some people saying, well, I didn't really like, you know, sh you're sharing too much. That's fine. It's not for them. You don't change things for that because the people who do stay are the right people. That is another piece of great advice. Thank you. Don't, awesome. be, don't be afraid of people unsubscribing. It's a good thing. It means your list is, is shaping itself organically to be your list and not yeah. somebody else's. 
Oh, perfect. And then one more time, let's do the address for everything that has to do with self-publishing formula. So it is, again, that's hopefully fairly straightforward, selfpublishingformula.com. If you go there and then it's, you know, it's a typical website with a set of, uh, of tabs at the top and one of them is called courses. So I would point people in the direction, depending on where you are with your career, there are a couple of free courses um, and there's a really good, really useful one called list building for authors. So it's on the courses tab at selfpublishingformula.com. Um, join that. It's basically, it's delivered via email. It's three quite instructional video lessons on how to use Facebook ads to, to drive your mailing list building. And, uh, it's really good. Um, it's, uh, it's been, you know, it's a lead generation thing because people see the quality of the teaching and that it works. And then of course they're thinking I must buy the real thing when it comes along. So yeah, uh, it works very well because it's, it, it does, it does what it says on the tin. Excellent. Very good. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I think that this was really fun listening to your journey. And also, I love that you had so many tips for other people who might be on the same journey. I hope so. I always feel at this stage, Kitty's still slightly fraudulent that I haven't published a book. But let's hope next time. Are you going to the conferences in the autumn? Um, I don't know what my plan is in 2019, simply because I have this opportunity to uh, visit all of Europe because everything is a two-hour plane right away. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, if I bump into you, I'm hoping at that point I will be a published yes. author. And I, can, yes. I can look everyone else in the eye. Well, and you know, I can just come over to the UK and say, James, I'm here to buy your book. Yeah. You get a signed <laughs> copy for free. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kitty. It's been, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a really good, uh, really good chat. And you know what? When people interview you and ask you why you're doing it, what you're doing, it's a really good process to go through. So just my last tip might be that it's really good to buddy up with people and talk to each other about why they're writing the book and, and how they're getting on with that stuff. Because just talking, thinking it through out loud is helpful, isn't it? I've probably yeah. had a few ideas whilst I've been talking, which are going to uh, help me with my process and so on. So yeah, I, so thank you for my awesome. therapy. <laughs> so welcome. We'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs>